I used to fear how I felt, especially as a young man, and there were many reasons for this. Welcome to Anxiety Master. My name is Dominic Decker, a teacher, registered therapist, and your support behind Anxiety Master, here to help you develop the practical and emotional skills you need for a strong and confident life. So what lay behind the fear of my feelings? Well, there were various things, I suspect. Ego. I had a fragile self-perception that I was committed to maintaining because, well, if I did away with this foundation, the whole structure would collapse. Fear. I didn't know what I'd find at my core should I look too closely, yet I suspected it might not be pretty. Uncertainty. About what it was to be attractive and whether my emotional experience could ever be acceptable. Doubt. Regarding whether my emotions were valid and worthy of acknowledgement, Or would a proper person suck it up, man up, because boys don't cry, so stop acting like a sissy? All those toxic notions that hinder the ability to communicate honestly. There was nervousness about being vulnerable. I mean, what if I exposed how I felt to others? Might they respond by rejecting or abandoning me? And if so, then what? And also, concern that my true feelings were meant to be kept secret, private and confidential, a silent suffering to be tidy locked away so as not to put others off their tea. Clearly, much thought and emotion were invested in dampening my feelings, and underlying this was a silent belief that my internal experience reflected the person I was. In other words, I was a shameful person if I had shameful feelings, or I was an unlikable person if I had unpleasant emotions. And now I understand emotions as like the weather. Just as the weather can change quickly and unpredictably, so can your emotions. But just as the weather does not define who you are, neither do your emotions, because they're simply passing through. And as we can dress for sun or storms, who we are and who we become concerns not so much the content of emotional experience, but more how we respond to it. And this is what I want to talk about with you today, how you can learn an important step to acknowledging how you feel, Namely, instead of judging your emotions to be either good or bad, to learn how to listen and describe how you feel as an initial means of processing your emotional experience. Now, thinking back to my own personal life back then as a young man, I wasn't at peace with many aspects of my past and how some events had shaped me. So I did my best to ignore internal reflection because I wasn't sure how to look. And if I did, would I be okay with what I found? I remember my mid-twenties looking through a self-esteem questionnaire and mentally ticking all the boxes. It might have been a call to action, a nudge to get some clear-eyed perspective on the direction of my life. But instead, I remember my face heating up as I read through, and I swallowed the reckoning and just told myself anyone could report those feelings on any given day. And besides, daft self-questionnaires, they have as much clout as reading your horoscope. And both are nice for some self-centred distraction, yet unworthy of serious attention. Yeah, if I'm honest, the ego was pretty raw back then. I spent a lot of energy preserving a sense of self that, in fact, was desperate for some candid and generous intervention. It's often true that we'd prefer to distract our attention or swiftly bypass emotional vulnerability. Because somewhere inside, many of us are primed to judge any chinks in the armour as a sign of weakness. And if we're weak, well, perhaps we're not worthy. And if we're not worthy, the group might abandon us. And then what? Well, we'll be left to fend for ourselves and life will feel precarious and uncertain and maybe lonely. 
That sounds scary. In fact, come to think of it, I completely understand why I chose not to look too carefully at my internal experience. Rather, I felt calmer surrounded by the hustle and bustle as a means to subdue the internal noise. Yet in hindsight, I now understand that nothing keeps us welded to emotional discomfort like pretending it doesn't exist. And today, I want to pick up on some of these themes to talk about how we can get better at processing our emotions by learning to feel them instead of judging them. In other words, to suspend the often silent and underlying belief that emotions are either good or bad, and instead to lean in and feel more carefully. Because learning to feel how you feel is an important step towards tackling internal discomfort. Indeed, learning to feel is akin to giving yourself a compass through the storm. Besides, when we don't acknowledge how we feel, it comes out in our behaviour anyway, so better to move with it than against it. Now for me back then, self-esteem, this is the, the beliefs I carried about my worth and ability represented a fair chunk of pain. Now maybe you can recognise some aspect of self-esteem as an issue for you too. Well here are some common self-esteem themes that get in people's way. Well, they believe they don't deserve or are not good enough. So they wind up believing their inner voice and one that keeps telling them that they aren't good enough, that they don't know enough. And that's for other people, not for them. They couldn't possibly succeed at that and they have no luck, so don't even try. It seems like everyone has gone to the party while they chose to stay at home while wishing secretly that they could be there too. They overcompensate, so they take extreme measures attempting to correct or make amends for an error, weakness or other problem. For example, they may take on excess responsibility at work, answering emails late into their private time, perhaps to try and bypass the discomfort of some other perceived shortcoming or limitation. They do things for other people to try and feel better. Now, while it's nice to do something for others, sometimes the motive is to feel better about oneself instead of simply helping someone else. They compromise on things they shouldn't. They might relinquish or give up on an idea or value to please someone else. And here, they prioritise the projections of others over their own sense of self. And then when it comes to relationships, whether with those at work or with friends or romantic partners, we know that these can damage self-esteem. Yet people already with low self-esteem get in or stay in toxic relationships. And often, because they devalue themselves, they rationalise and justify that it's okay. They tolerate unacceptable behaviour. Because they believe they aren't good enough, they allow people to say and do mean or inappropriate things to them. Remaining stuck in the way they allow others to take advantage often results from a subtle, underlying desire to keep the pain and anguish with them. They might think this will bring them attention and acknowledgement. Or perhaps the experience of sorrow or sadness is more familiar and comfortable, and at least pain is stable. Now, ultimately, they don't believe they deserve to be treated in a kind and fair way. They don't set and hold good boundaries to protect themselves. So people with insufficient self-esteem don't set limits on what is and is not acceptable for others to do to them. And even when they do set boundaries, they swiftly back down and allow the behaviour to continue. They don't ask for what they want because they believe they don't deserve good things or a better life. They just don't ask for them. People with insufficient self-esteem berate themselves they beat themselves up more than anyone else because they feel they have failed somehow. Even if it was a simple, honest error, they feel the emotional burden of blame. 
and so they stay quiet about it, fearing being wrong or sounding stupid. They seek perfection in themselves and sometimes from others, and when they can't be perfect, they give themselves a hard time instead of accepting what is, or they look for other people's faults as a temporary fix to feel better rather than look at themselves. They fixate on the negatives, so they believe everyone else's life is better or maybe more important than theirs. Instead of looking at all the good things they have, they compare their lives to those of others, and one tiny negative comment or observation can linger forever in their memory while all the compliments and praise go unnoticed. They tend to stay quiet and suffer. At times, speaking up and expressing what is wanted makes sense, but they hold back because they see themselves as not worthy or deserving. And ultimately, they don't acknowledge the beauty and gifts they bring to the world. Instead, they dismiss everything they have to offer as negligible or immaterial. Now, if listening to that audit of behaviours or self-beliefs rings any bells, you might consider the way you treat yourself and whether you value your emotional experience with the importance it deserves. Yet to do this, well, we need a slightly different focus. Now, having worked with countless people in my therapy practice, I've come to develop a different perspective on the concept of self-esteem. You see, as necessary as it is to have sufficient and balanced self-esteem, it tends not to be a reliable friend. Because the way we feel about ourselves directly relates to how we believe others perceive us. So self-esteem tends to be high when we believe others view us positively. Yet when we feel low and unworthy or don't feel other people value or acknowledge us meaningfully, self-esteem deserts us and then we're left to rebuild on our own. So instead, when it comes to acknowledging your emotional experience, the concept of self-compassion is perhaps more helpful. Self-compassion involves extending the same level of care and understanding you would to a friend in need, but in this case, towards yourself. And we can think of it as having three components. Component one is self-kindness versus self-judgment. So Self-compassion entails being kind and understanding towards ourselves when we suffer or fail or feel inadequate rather than ignoring the pain or berating ourselves with self-criticism. And self-compassionate people recognise that being imperfect and failing and experiencing life's difficulties are inevitable so they aim to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences rather than getting angry when life falls short of set ideals. Now we can only sometimes be or get exactly what we want. So when we fight this reality, suffering increases in the form of stress and frustration and self-criticism. Yet when we accept this reality with sympathy and kindness, greater emotional peace is experienced. And the second element involves this idea of common humanity versus this kind of internal isolation. Now frustration that not having things exactly as we want is often accompanied by an irrational but pervasive sense of isolation, as if I were the only person suffering or making mistakes. Now this is understandable because each of us has no experience that we aren't at the centre of. Yet to expand our perception to the wider world and to realise that all humans suffer, the very definition of being human means that one is mortal vulnerable and imperfect. Therefore, self-compassion involves recognising that suffering and personal inadequacy are part of the shared human experience, 
and something we all go through rather than something that happens to me alone. And the third important aspect refers to mindful presence versus over-identification. So self-compassion also requires a balanced approach to our uncomfortable emotions so that feelings are neither suppressed nor exaggerated. And this stable stance stems from being able to relate personal experience to those of others and their suffering, thus locating our experience into a bigger picture. So it also stems from the willingness to observe our anxious and painful emotions and thoughts, but openly and clearly. So in other words, to attend to how we feel with a non-judgmental and receptive filter in which we observe thoughts and feelings as they are without trying to suppress or deny them. To bind this into a relatable image, imagine a young child coming to you crying with a grazed knee. Now what would your response be? You would likely listen to what had happened and offer them comfort and find a way to set their wound towards healing. When we think about self-compassion, we might consider ourselves and our emotional experience as that child who needs the same kindness, empathy and understanding. This is self-compassion. There's a chance that without realising it, you judge your emotions, that you have an underlying belief that emotions are either good or bad. And many of us have been taught to suppress or ignore the ones that are considered negative, such as anger or sadness and to embrace the ones considered positive, such as happiness or joy. If you reflect for a moment, do you label emotions as good or bad? For instance, if you're sad, might you think, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way. I should just get on with it and not complain. Or maybe you feel guilty if you're angry, or you find yourself apologising if you cry. And many girls have been taught not to be angry. Many boys have been taught not to cry. Many of us have been taught to, at least outwardly, remain positive all the time and to never make anyone else feel bad either. So a part of self-compassion involves getting better at feeling by learning to describe instead of judge how you feel. In other words, to do away with thinking in terms of positive, good and negative, bad emotions. To simply acknowledge and describe our emotions instead of denying the experience. Now, emotions occur in response to any kind of stimulus. It could be actual, imagined or relived, such as physical events, social interactions, or remembering or imagining an event, and sometimes talking or thinking about or physically reliving a past emotional experience. Now, just a little bit of background on the concept of negative emotions and where it stems from. So when it comes to interpreting how we feel, many of us have kind of indirectly been informed, at least partially, by the work of a well-known theorist named Paul Ekman. And Paul Ekman adopted this concept that humans experience five primary emotions. These are joy, fear, anger, disgust and sadness. And Ekman popularised the idea of seven universal facial expressions. These are anger, contempt, disgust, enjoyment, fear sadness and surprise. So naturally, our facial expressions have an impact on other people. And here we might learn to judge which are good and which are not by the responses that we receive from other people. And a majority of these emotions and their corresponding facial expressions can be judged as negative in their impact on others. So in effect, to comply with social norms, 
we often end up learning to mask or swallow the majority of our emotional experience. So when we label the majority of emotions as bad, whether we realise it or not, we end up putting loads of energy into trying to shut down the other 90% of how we're really feeling. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had the experience more times than I'd like to recall of smiling when I feel embarrassed or distressed. In those moments, it seems that the raw emotion isn't allowed or isn't meant to be displayed, even less if it might somehow upset others or cause further disruption. And yet, what's the outcome of not expressing how we feel? Now, people feel miserable, disconnected from themselves and not adequately seen and heard. If you think about when you try to avoid sadness and instead be upbeat, you know, here, suppression of how you feel causes a disconnect between the external situation and your internal experience. It's kind of jarring and, and upsetting because ultimately we're left with limited options for how we can honestly respond to how we feel. So you can try not to feel sad or disappointed, but the more you suppress this, the greater the pressure to explode. And maybe you've had that experience at work, for instance, where people are being annoying, rude or inconsiderate and putting too much on you. Or maybe you've just had too much to do and you can feel the pressure rising. But there's been no appropriate moment. There's been no opportunity to uh, express in an even way how you're feeling. Or maybe you haven't even had a chance to take a step back and work out how you're really feeling. And then later, it's often with those we feel safest with, poor them. The earlier buildup of distress bubbles up and erupts over something minor. And naturally, for the other person, this unregulated and often disproportionate emotional response results in misunderstanding and conflict and upset with those that we hold the dearest. So then we feel shame and guilt with ourselves and often we might revert to suppressing how we really feel again. And so we kind of end up trapped. We might think if we were better or stronger or if we had more willpower that we'd be able to balance between denying emotions and acting on them. Yet this doesn't work very well. And besides, if you don't express how you feel, it always finds a way of coming out anyway. So we want to step off this seesaw of suppress and explode and instead, learn to acknowledge, lean in and listen, and then make a conscious choice about what we want to do with how we're feeling. Now, this is the first important step in learning to process your emotions. So when you get better at feeling your emotions, you're going to feel more peace and calm. And one of the ways we do this is by developing a non-judgmental attitude about emotions. So instead of labelling good, bad or should, should not emotions, we're going to focus our energy on acknowledging them for what they are, notice that they exist and instead of judging emotions, learn to describe them. And there are comfortable and uncomfortable emotions and there are exaggerated and distorted ones as well. So instead of saying that this is bad, let's have a go at being more descriptive about how we're feeling. We might say, for instance, well, this feeling inside right now it's uncomfortable or it's painful or it's difficult or it's bringing something up for me and I'm not quite sure how I can understand it right in this moment. Now this level of honesty and sincerity to really reflect upon how we're feeling inside 
this matters because when we label something as bad, we limit ourselves to just a few tools. You know, we have to avoid it. We have to just kind of swallow the lump and keep coping or we distract ourselves from it. But when we have that courage to look in the mirror and to really experience that reflection and to become curious about how we feel, then those emotions can become a, a superpower in a sense. It's almost like they can become an important messenger for our experience. We hold them close, they become a friend. So instead of suppressing emotions, let's think about how we can be curious about them. You might imagine yourself like a scientist or explorer investigating a new species. And then whenever you have a feeling that's coming up and you're not quite sure where it's coming from or what it represents or how you might even want to respond, you can give yourself a moment to gather a, a modicum of composure, take yourself aside and focus on your breath and bring yourself to a place of modest calm inside and soften your gaze and simply sit with the experience. Now, if this is something you're not used to, this will take practice. This can feel awkward. It can feel uncomfortable. And as I said right at the beginning, sometimes we might be afraid to listen to carefully because we don't know what we'll hear. But ultimately, if we can learn to embrace those emotions and our internal experience like that small child who's come to us looking for care and empathy, and understanding. We'll be acting towards ourselves with the greatest degree of compassion we can. So you might think about, for instance, when you want to describe your emotional experience, you might think in terms of, okay, what am I feeling right now? Or what triggered this emotion? How intense is it right now? I mean, how does this experience affect me physically? And how does this emotion impact my thoughts and behaviour? And you might want to think, is this a new feeling or does it feel old and familiar? How long has it been present for? Is this emotion a reaction to a current situation or a past experience? And are there any other emotions present that may be influencing how I feel? Now, when you've sat with this for a while, then you might finish or conclude by asking, well, what might help me manage this emotion or change my response to it right now? Now, sometimes there's nothing immediate that you can do, but you see many intense emotions are really just asking to be recognised and acknowledged. So then they tend to dissipate on their own when they receive that level of care and regard. So this is a wonderful skill to spend some time with, listening to learn and understand and describe how you feel represents a profound validation of who you are. So have courage and spend time with this. I hope you found that useful. Thanks for listening and I'll be back soon.